watchers in the fourth dimension. Logic seems to be your weak point. His ingenuity could ruin everything. I don't trust you. The feeling is mutual. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And leave him to me. I'll kill him first. <laughs> this episode, it's the end of the Troughton era as we discuss the second half of The War Games. We covered all of the behind-the-scenes information in our previous episode, so if you haven't heard that, go check it out, then come back and listen to this one. Please do come back. With that being said, we will jump straight into our customary short summary and then discuss episodes 6 through 10. Don, the short summary is in your hands, so over to you. My original summary was just 30 seconds of me weeping uncontrollably, but I'll see if I can actually sum up what we watched. The war games continue as a Dr. Jamie and Zoe continue to assist the resistance, including a rather unfortunate Mexican stereotype. The war and security chiefs <laughs> do their best to hide their true feelings from their familiar Bond villain-looking warlord, but frankly, they give us more sustained sexual attention than we've seen since the Dominators. <laughs> After fighting for nearly 10 episodes to free people from having their memories tampered with and being forced to do things against their will, the Doctor calls upon his own people, the Time Lords, to give everybody a ride home. They reward him for his trouble by tampering with Jamie and Zoe's memories and forcing the Doctor to change his appearance against his will. Thanks for nothing, Time Jerks. <laughs> Alright, so episode 6. And wow, the security chief is is really suspicious of the war chief holy shit and, and rightly so he made a good point a while back when he said he was a traitor to his own people so how do we know he's not going to be a traitor to us yeah that's true we do get the first mention of the time lords here they are finally named it's been how long now six seasons yeah it's not even like the name of an alien race. It's definitely from the, the dominators school of naming <laughs> <laughs> But it sticks. I swear next season we're going to have a, a group of bad guys called the Antagonists. <laughs> Change in leadership next season, so maybe not. Okay. <laughs> but let's talk about the most important thing, is that Jamie isn't dead. Yeah. <laughs> just stunned. Just, just stunned. I love how Zoe, being all... Seeing what's going on, seeing how ambushed jamie is and the guards all around them and by the way i think we should start referring to the guards as the gimp troopers i agree <laughs> the gimp troopers is good but seeing jamie surrounded by them and yet she still wants to get up and help like i i like the energy but zoe come on think think about this i get it you you want to help your friend what would jamie's reaction be exactly the same he would immediately stand up and charge and violently charge and attack Gregator! Yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah he would bellow that <laughs> absolutely it's one of those things where i'll forgive zoe for it because i think she's thinking about what jamie would do and it would be to rescue that's very true okay good point good point so let's talk about that sexual tension don mentioned <laughs> <laughs> the security chief really does have a sexy voice that is true I can't deny that. He really does sound a lot like a Dalek. He really does. It does seem like so intentional, doesn't it? Like it's just too on the nose. It's definitely on purpose because it gives him the sound of even when he's really upset about something, he sounds kind of like he's in control. Mm -hmm. I say, I think this is what happens when as a 
organization, you have two people that you've hired and you put them in the exact same title or roughly the same title, war chief, security chief. There's probably a lot of tension there because they didn't know who was in charge of the other one. He looks a lot like Goebbels if Goebbels wore glasses. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Well, Riley, with what you were saying, I think one of the big things there is that they really should be thinking of themselves as being the leaders of different departments, but that's not how they think about it. Mm-hmm. But at least the, the security chief does have a pretty good reason, and his distrust is not unfounded. In my head, Cannon, he's been hurt before. <laughs> <laughs> that's how he has yeah. that cold, unemotional voice. He just can't open himself up again. Yeah, he's just that's why he's so suspicious of the of the war chief. Wow, I'm not even sure what to say. I didn't even think I was supposed to go down this rabbit hole, and apparently I was <laughs> supposed to. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something there when the war chief says, be certain of any accusations you might make or I will crush you. It's almost got the same kind of uh, sexual tension competitiveness uh, between the two deans on the show Community. <laughs> The City College Dean and Greendale Community <laughs> College Dean. For some reason, I'm I'm really drawn to to thinking about John Oliver and his thirst over uh, Kylo Ren. Oh, crush me with your thighs, you robust elk! <laughs> oh, this is two episodes in a row. I've completely <laughs> taken us down a wrong path. Thank you, Adam Driver, not Kylo Ren. Anyway, uh, moving on. Moving on. We're talking about the brain overlays because they were awesome. Yes, they were pretty damn cool. They had a very unique art thing like that's supposed to be a brain, and then they focus it on Jamie's, and it's these little blocks. Mm-hmm. It amused me. I just really want to come back to the War Chief and the Security Chief. I've got them so much in my notes in this episode. But they're very predominant. Their conflict, their emotional conflict is 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 the B-plot, roughly, mm-hmm. until we bring in the Time Lords in the back episode. I know last episode we talked about this kind of turning into a reverse base under siege. And I think what we see with the war chief and the security chief is another element of that with the internal squabbling as things start coming under attack. I think they were squabbling long before. (laughs) Yeah, but it becomes obvious on screen at this point. I I did like the argument they were having. The security chief had had, they found anyone with odd brain pattern. Chief comes in and he, why wasn't I informed and blah, blah, blah. Having worked in corporate America, you get that squabbling, competing departments feel to that. Oh, God. 100%. And again, I think one of the things is potentially the security chief was eyeing up the position of the war chief and didn't get it. And he's just continuously <laughs> like, I hate this guy. He's he's not even one of us. And yet you put him in charge. How dare you? I, I think you're right. I, I, I think that long, long work days in that office when everyone else is left and it's just the two of them, they have long squabbling sessions in like the janitor's closet or the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about one of the things that struck me is that I know it's not like very important to the plot, but Zoe looks absolutely adorable in a military coat and hat. She really they does. All do. And she looks so cute. Cute as a button. I mean, as much as I hate to direct things away from hate squabbling, you are completely correct. She looks so adorable. They all look pretty adorable in, in those military uniforms. Like the doctor with his bowl haircut, just obviously not suiting the uniform at all, but is somehow really fetching in it. I don't think Jamie's haircut really suited the hat either. It doesn't. And then he's wearing a kilt, so the coat kind of goes down and is like, are you wearing pants? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I do love the entire escape attempt and how the Doctor, Jamie, and Carstairs stay behind to try and get the processing machine, which shows Jamie and Carstairs' loyalty since he was going to go and do it alone. 
I dig it. Mm-hmm. And then we cut away to the monocle guy. I forget his name. Unlike. Mm, yeah. That was a good scene. I'm sure you were like me going, no, 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 don't do the pocket thing. Don't do it. Don't get the monocle. <laughs> Absolutely. I love how that goes. You know, he does re-hypnotize his guard, but then the hypnotism's knocked out of him when Moore shows up and punches him just as he's being instructed to tell him to shoot the resistance leader. And it had to happen that way because if we would have had another scene where they're completely successful with hypnotizing somebody and we have to spend like a lot of time to try to bring them back out of it, it just would have been way too repetitive. Yeah. They've already set up the pattern and now they're starting to break those patterns. Yes. Also, the guard who got hypnotized, I believe, was David Troughton. Yes, he was in a very early role. Was it David Troughton who was in The New Statesman? Uh, quite possibly. I'm not sure. Yeah, it was one of the Troughton kids. I, I forget whether it was David or Michael. But yeah. Anyway, I digress again. Sorry. Ah, <sighs> guys. Lot, lot, lot to take in in this one. Back to the escape attempt. That ending as the Dr. Jamie and Carstairs are in the side rat. I hate that pronunciation. It's how it's pronounced, apparently. I got it wrong last episode. I think it's just how that one guy pronounces it. We're going back to Sid Rat. I'm going back to Sid Rat. Fight me, Big Finish. Come on. I don't care. <laughs> Sid Rat sounds better. I thought that was really cool how the War Chief reduced its dimensions. It seemed to me like a callback to the last time that we saw the meddling monk. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. That's a good observation. And as we mentioned earlier, we feel like this entire serial does end up making references to a lot of things during Troughton's period. And then we'll get to it in the last episode, but then it just kind of gives us our villain retrospective <laughs> at the very end, too. Not the best retrospective, but we'll touch on that, too. But but speaking of covering major themes of the Troughton era, we also saw another return of the sonic screwdriver. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's neat how right here at the end, they have a lot of internal continuity. Yeah. It's a lot of callbacks, a lot of internal continuity, and a lot of things where as a person who's watched mainly New Who, it's like, oh, okay, ooh, we are finally introduced to the Time Lords. Oh, and there's this thing, and there's this thing, so it's it's been fun. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, episode seven? Yes. Sure. They fell for the gas routine a second time. Yeah, they're a bit incompetent. I called the Batman villain TV show the getaway kind of thing, like where the Joker or the Riddler would do, just the yes. drop the smoke. And granted, it was gas as well, but the smoke getaway, that's just a classic. It's a classic Batman moment. <laughs> I really wish I could exit every room in that manner. Oh, God, it would be so wonderful. I do love how the War Chief is immediately like, well, they're clearly going to go back to the 1917 time zone, at which point you see the Doctor then cuts to him going, we're going anywhere other than that. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Almost like a little Iocane powder conversation right there. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the War Chief. You mean the Warlord? Excuse me, the Warlord. I'm sorry. Yes. So we haven't got to the Warlord yet. Okay. Well, we're about to. So finally, we find out he's about to show up. All right, right. Very quickly, did anyone notice how we find out he's going to show up? Of course, the war chief and the security chief start going at it again. And once <laughs> the war chief walks off, the security chief channels the bad boss that we've had and yells at his people. Yep. Yep. I was like, okay, so we've got that trope. We have that trope. And then speaking of the warlord, you know, one, his impeccable beard grooming is on point. 
I aspire to that. So, so good. But do you think that maybe the war chief and the security chief are, are squabbling because they want the warlord's attention? Ooh. Also possible. Maybe. The love triangle. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> and I, I must admit how much I love the casting of the warlord. Oh. It's our good buddy Philip Madoc all over again. Philip Madoc and his Welsh teeth. Yes. <laughs> He plays it in such an interesting manner because you expect the warlord to be kind of over the top and, and really loud, and he's not, and he's very subtle, and I love that. Yes, we have another calm guy in charge. He was so good. He was very good. We have two very over-the-top villains in the war chief and the security chief, so I love that they balance them out by bringing in their boss, who is very very reserved and when he loses his temper you know he's pissed that's why he's the boss hmm? yeah. <laughs> and now did anyone think that the warlord his style did steve jobs steal his style <laughs> <laughs> the glasses i did wonder the same thing it's very similar <laughs> or you could just think that like we could just play a game and say this is like you know this alien race of the warlord war, war chief i see the security chief they're just apple employees would he be the Eye Lord? The Eye Lord, yes. <laughs> the Eye Lord Pro, I guess, would be the proper designation. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Let's talk briefly since it's all interspersed. We get another Roman attack because they've landed in the Roman time zone. And it's the exact same footage. Oh yeah. Because that's cheaper, Anthony. I know. They had to pay for that stuff. Come on. You gotta get some usage out of it. <laughs> With all five Romans. They already spent that money. It's not like they're going to be able to get actual photographs of potential faces at the end of the serial. They have to draw those on the cheap because they spent all that money on the Roman outfit. <laughs> this is one of the most ambitious episodes. I mean, I know that the Daleks Master Plan is as well, but this, I think, covers a lot more than the Daleks Master Plan ever did. And so I'm not surprised that, you know what, if they're going to cut a corner and show re-show some Roman warfare, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, if it had been them being attacked by evil Christmas trees, I would have been totally in favor of that. But Julie is correct. Yeah. We get General Smythe again. We do. I was was not happy about that. I was <laughs> ready to see the end of him. But he's back and you're like, oh, no. But uh, at least we get to see the end of him, though. Yeah. He's vicious here. He just wants the doctor killed for revenge. He's prepared to lie about it to his superiors. Risky. It is risky, but what I like, though, is about bringing him in is it makes it feel like the world is is more complete because it's like, yes, of course they're going to interact with these characters again if they're going to go back to that era. So I, I like the, the continuity of it, and yes, I know Smythe was kind of a little ridiculous, but I still liked him as a character. I thought he was great. I mean, I know we said last episode, in any other story, he would have been the main villain. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's he's relegated to, I think, being in three or four episodes. I think the only character as far as finalizing something that we didn't get to see was Lady Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I did miss seeing her in the in the last half of this. Well, so <laughs> let's let's talk about that. How many women did we see in the last half of this? Zoe? Outside of Zoe? <laughs> Outside of Zoe, zero. Uh, yeah. It's a problem. Well, there was one more at the very end. Well, yes, she came back. Oh, yes. Yes. yes, Tanya. The half of the flirting blondes from the Wheel of Space. <laughs> I love that they brought her back, but we'll, we'll get to that. 
And I'd like to clarify, it's not that I dislike the... I don't like Smythe because I just... Because he's a villain, I just really despise the character. But it's a well... But that means that's a well-done villain. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Okay. But it's nice that when he comes back, you essentially get to see him get his comeuppance. Yes. And frankly, yes. I think if his superiors had found out what he did, he would have been killed anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's he's so bloodthirsty. And when the doctor sees him, the doctor is so very spiteful and petulant towards him. You can tell there's a real like antagonism between the two. It's it's just so well done. He gets his comeuppance and they're trying to figure out how they can create a home base for themselves. And he comes up with creating their own time mist. Which I like. That's smart. That's using the tools at their disposal. I still question it a little bit because I still feel like the people of... Okay, so no soldiers can get in and things of that nature, but does that really stop the warlord and the chief and all of them? Well, they're basically have the potential to be attacked on two fronts. Anything outside the chateau, which is, you know, real human soldiers... Mm -hmm. And then also by the Warlord's troops coming in through the Sid rats. Yes, I'm pronouncing it that way. So they're trying to eliminate at least one of those avenues for attack. And it's made fairly clear in dialogue by the Warlord and the War Chief, not so much the Security Chief, who's an idiot, that they would rather use conventional troops rather than ruin ruin their experiments with their GIMP troopers. So... (laughs) Eventually, that's what they have to do because the Doctor knows that they're trying to avoid that. So he forces them into that option. First off, I do want to talk about how their plan is stupid. (laughs) So there's that. (laughs) I warned you last time, I bet the actual explanation is not going to hold up because it never does. Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. I mean, it's ambitious, but stupid. (laughs) Ambitious, but stupid. I I know what's going on here. (laughs) After he left... The now unnamed planet, the War Chief, actually encountered and worked with some Cybermen, and he got a spare plan from a cyber controller. <laughs> and you can figure out the rest from there. Yes, we can. One thing that I was curious about was they capture a French soldier and deprogram him, and no one, not even the Doctor, can speak to him. Because apparently the Doctor, despite speaking so many languages and getting around just fine in France in the Reign of Terror, can't speak French. There's a Futurama joke around that. (laughs) I leave it to the audience to discover it for themselves. I also like (laughs) that the French soldier couldn't speak English until he was specifically asked if he could speak English. I mean, he barely speaks English, but he at least... It's like, oh, English. And I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he's still recovering from getting rebooted, so to speak. Yeah, that's fair. So I don't blame him for that. I think the doctor knows and is just sticking around. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Would that be an anti-doctor thing, really? Like, he would do something like that. (laughs) Maybe. All right, so we end this episode with the shock attack with the GIMP troopers, bringing us into episode eight. Well, I mean, you have to say what happens. The doctor is captured by the Gimp oh, troopers, obviously. and then the yes. machine takes off. And we should con- we should say that they're continuing to have good cliffhangers. Yes, they are. So far, I think the weakest one was way back in episode two. Yeah, I think you're right. We haven't even discussed episode eight yet, but I think episode eight has one of the best. Yeah, we'll get there. I love the way once he's been captured... The doctor tells one of the gimp troopers that he's not going to harm them. That's just so doctorish. <laughs> oh, oh, that was great. That was awesome. 
And of course, without the doctor, everyone else is like floundering on what to do. I mean, he's very clearly the brains of the operation. Well, it's partially that he's the brains, but then there's no clear who should be next in line of being in charge. And that's where the struggle is. I know who Julie thinks should be in charge. No, I don't think he should be in charge. (laughs) (laughs) But he's put in charge. As much as I love Jamie, Zoe should really realistically be in charge. Yeah. In a case like this, Smarts is going to overcome Braun. She should be in charge of coming up with all the plans, and Jamie should be in charge of actually leading physical battle. But she needs to wear the coat and hat. Oh, yes, absolutely. She always needs to wear the coat and hat. Also, that scene with the security chief questioning the doctor, he just won't let this drop. You're in league with the war chief. Oh, but we got the interrogation hat again. (laughs) I'm going to buy you one of those for your birthday. Ooh. So you'll be wearing that to Dragon Con? Yes. (laughs) I might make my, uh, those little sunglass things that they wear. (laughs) (laughs) You're just like, what in the world? People just think, why is there a Devo cover band here? That's awesome. (laughs) It would be the most obscure cosplay group at the Doctor Who photo shoot. Okay, now I have to. (laughs) So I get the cute hat and coat, right? Yes. Yes, you do. Fantastic. I love it. Who's wearing the gimp suit? I think Riley's (laughs) the only one skinny enough. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) So the plan is, is to get this Mexican civil war group. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Because this is going to play out so well on screen. I can't. So very quickly, can, can we talk about that adorable smile that Jamie has after he gets over the surprise of being put in charge? <laughs> it's like, finally. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't bring that up, Julie, because that was precious. It was very precious. And again, while I don't think he actually should be in charge, it's adorable that he's so excited. All right, let's talk about Arturo Villar. Okay, first of all, I love the fact that he comes in in stealth mode. <laughs> and and then after that, it's like, oh, oh, we are we almost have another comedy accent character here. I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah, he's he tries to be Mexican, but he seems more Italian at times. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to say the actor definitely uh, doesn't necessarily know the difference. I don't know. There were a lot of really great Westerns made by Italians, so... That is very true. I mean, I know the character is played broadly and stereotypically, but I don't know why I enjoyed the character so much, because it was just such a wild card character, and to throw that in when everything's been so planned and reserved, and we just have a guy that's like, hey, I'm just going to come in here and just start shooting stuff. He's like Yosemite Sam. (laughs) (laughs) I like him from that aspect. Basically, once you get past that stereotypical accent and like look and feel and everything like the fact that he's just coming in being like i don't really care i do what i want it's like yeah that's kind of fun but what i liked is jamie's trying to try well first zoe's trying to talk to him and he's like well i'm not going to talk to you so we have to do do with jamie so first off i love when like zoe goes to like get jamie and he's he's been like just resting or something and he's like oh oh okay What, what do you need me to do he has very primitive ideas about women knowing their place. <laughs> but to see the difference so obvious between how Jamie treats women and how Arturo treats women is, yes, while sometimes Jamie runs a little bit of that chauvinistic streak, it is with a different intent. He doesn't think lesser of women. He just wants to protect them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
a much yeah. better place to come from than Arturo. And in this case, he was clearly just enjoying getting to tease Zoe a little bit. Oh, 100%. Oh, does he now? Sounds like a nice chap. <laughs> <laughs> Dialogue triumph right there. For Arturo, the other thing that's really interesting about him, he gets his own music cue <laughs> in this episode. Yes. You notice that? And it's quite good. It's quite fun. I just thought that was so funny that like you know we had been using the old like war games queue for so many things, and then all of a sudden we decide in the eighth episode like all right let's have a completely different one for this one specific character. I think you almost have to because all of the other characters from the games have all been so buttoned up. They're very disciplined military men, either from World War One, the American Civil War. They're in like serious conflicts, and suddenly you get this Mexican bandit. He's just such a different character from what we've actually seen so far. And I think having his own music musical cue because of that makes a lot of sense. It also, once again, keeps the story moving along, but not mm -hmm. necessarily in a direction you were expecting. Right. Because we, we're continuing to introduce new characters in this serial. It's very impressive. I mean, it, it goes back to what we were saying last episode around how this revolves the cast frequently. You get characters coming in and out. It revolves the setting fairly regularly. It definitely does help keep it fresh and interesting. You're right, Don. But here, and I'm doing this as a segue so that Julie can express her feelings about it. As the war chief interrogates the doctor, we, we finally get... I believe, the discussion of what the final objective of the war games are. <laughs> Their cunning plan. <laughs> to take over the galaxy. <sighs> and bring peace to the universe through conquest. So they have all these people fighting, and the people that survive are clearly the best soldiers and will be a super army. What about, you know, missing limbs... <laughs> PTSD. <laughs> well, my biggest question is they chose all of these wars from different time periods. How in the world do you think that Roman soldiers are going to do against World War II soldiers? It's a different type of warfare. And for the most part, well, if they have guns, the World War II guys are going to win. But that's the thing. They're not even fighting in different time zones. They're just fighting their normal war. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm like, who are they up against in the galaxy? Because if anyone in the galaxy is further advanced than Earth, then <laughs> sucks for them because all their soldiers are going to die. I assume they're going to take them and train them on how to use their futuristic weaponry and so on. But yeah, it, it's not a great plan as plans go. I mean, it would have been better, and Anthony, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. It really required some sort of scene to explain just, it doesn't need much, just a little bit of detail of like, we wanted to see who could be the most bold, vicious, aggressive, and yet tactically smart fighting force, no matter what weapons they had, because we will arm them or something. To find out like you're looking for the, the, like, the best warriors from the inside. That would, that's all they need to say. What I find strange about that, though, is like, especially with some of these wars, as much as we talk about World Wars 1 and 2, with World War 1, you got like 16-year-old fighting. They're not going to be your best bet, but they're going to be your primary force in that. So it's just, I don't, it's bad. I'm sorry, it's just bad. I think fundamentally, you know, what are the writers saying on this? And I think it's a very bleak outlook on humanity. Oh, yeah. They talk about how we've spent thousands of years killing each other savagely. Wow. Yeah. 
The other thing that comes out of that interrogation is we do get a little bit of conversation, and I, I know we come back to it in episode 10, but between why the two of them decided to leave their home planet between the Doctor and the War Chief. The Doctor says, I had every right to leave. He wanted to obviously go explore the universe and interfere and stuff, and the War Chief just wanted power. But I like that we start getting that hint of that conversation mm-hmm. earlier, and it comes back around and feeds into episode 10. Yeah. That's well done. And you mentioned it before, Anthony, when we were talking about the first half of the serial, is the War Chief does kind of seem like a uh, a blueprint for the Master. Mm-hmm. Need to bring the Master back with that facial hair. <laughs> you son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the Resistance plan as they're going to head back in. I love what they're doing, drawing the aliens out through destroying equipment in different time zones and like coordinated attacks. Yeah, I like that a lot. Like just and also how it was done, like the the montage yes. of like you know showing the clip yeah. of a small little attack and building up there. Like I wish that obviously they didn't have enough like money to like do like several of those little one off action scenes and then cut it back to them and the headquarters like working on the map and it's building and you can see a process and that would have been that would have been great. But it, the the point still comes across. What I love about it too is that each place had its own theme. Yes. And the best theme was the Crimean War. Crimean War definitely had the best musical theme of like this entire serial. I loved it. So with the Crimean, what one of the Cossacks, his hat and his facial, how he looked facially, made him look a little bit like Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. So w- what I love about this is this really feels like when this truly becomes reverse based on the siege, because you have them picking off the alien troops in multiple different locations with the goal of dividing those resources so they can get into the main base and take it over. Very guerrilla warfare. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's done so well, and it's that final use of that Troughton-era trope, I think. And it's all because the security chief is an idiot. You send all the troops out. Oh, great, now there's nobody to defend the base. All right, let's just nuke everyone. Dude. (sighs) Dude. Yeah, and I'm like, you had this carefully curated plan, you have all these war games going on, and your reaction is, let's send a nuke. <laughs> mm. Just wiping the game board and starting again, I guess. I'm sorry, I'm I'm 100% team war chief in this. He's much more competent. Yeah. Yeah. He really is. If the security chief spent less time trying to undermine the war chief and more time on doing his actual job, this might have gone better. Although, to be fair, I guess I'm okay with the security chief being that way because or else, you know, the TARDIS crew would probably be dead by now. That's true. Plus, it was really fun seeing them squabble and fight. Speaking of the war chief, he basically coerces the doctor into helping them and... Help work with us or I'm going to nuke your friends. <laughs> and, and I'll kill you, yeah. At least he gets the warlord endorsing his plan, albeit with the threat of of killing both the Doctor and the War Chief if they fail. But the Doctor helping them ambush everyone, that felt so dirty. I felt icky with it happening. It's so strange because that is a perfect example of such good development of a character. And granted, it's been many, many years. But to see that happen, even though you know that the Doctor has another plan or he's just doing it because he has to, it just still hits you wrong. Yeah. It just gives you such an emotional reaction when you see it and you just, oh, it's my favorite cliffhanger. Even though I know it's very obvious that somehow the Doctor is going to figure out a way, but it's... 
the first time I've seen something like that play out from the start of the series. And what really makes it for me and, and really twists the knife, the emotional knife, is when the camera cuts to the faces of Jamie and Zoe yeah. when they realize mm-hmm. they've been betrayed. That was Their expressions were so heartbreaking. All right, episode nine. We're heading towards the end. I don't like it. No. <laughs> All right, we'll soldier on. Resistance people wanting to hurt the doctor. Yep. Their point else wanting to kill the doctor. So the, the security chief, let's talk about him for a second. So A, he and the war chief still can't agree on anything, and that includes whether or not to lock up the doctor with everyone else. The war chief really needs him because his TARDISes or, or his SIDRATs are about to go belly up. And then the security chief throws the doctor in there with the resistance who want to kill him. He's also just told that the doctor's going to reprocess them. Did the war chief just steal a whole bunch of, of SIDRATs? Because he apparently doesn't know how they work. I mean, they apparently have a problem with the doctor taking one old model. And this guy just basically went to a car lot and took a whole bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know whether he built them. There's definitely a line in there about what he did to add in remote control and a few other of the features shortens their lifespan and he knows it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's built this problem for himself. I guess he stole a lot because if he built them himself, he wouldn't have this issue on only having a couple left because he could just build more. I think his problem is going to come to it. I mean, if if the events didn't unfold as they did... He was going to have a problem very soon because they don't have enough juice to do what's necessary at the end Mm -hmm. of the serial. And if the war games were going to continue, they were going to have to go and get more subjects. Kind of makes you wonder what his plan was. Like, he knew this was going to fail and he didn't know the Doctor was going to show up with his own TARDIS. I guess maybe he thought he would just use one with some juice to maybe sneak back and steal some more. I don't know. Maybe. Just doesn't seem that well thought out. I also don't think that the war chief thought it would take so long for them to to do what they were doing. That's that's one of my guesses. A plan that bad takes a long time. <laughs> it really mm. does. But I really liked kind of that interaction of Dr. Like figuring it out. And it's like, what do you want? Oh, you want the TARDIS. Yeah. Which once again, he probably could have figured out where it was because they know where they were first reported. They know it was the 1917 zone. So all he really had to do was to send some people out to look for something odd. Yeah. People aren't smart. You know, there are some (laughs) holes in the plan here, but I don't think it's overly detrimental to the story. Let me put some wallpaper over the plot hole that I just pointed out. He may know that these machines can be locked. And even into this, we do see the doctor using his key on it. So maybe he realized that it would be locked and would be impenetrable. So he needed the doctor to be able to get in. Oh, yeah. Well, it sounds like I think we're being a little bit critical. Probably Donna and I are probably sounding the most critical of everyone. It's really just to say that it is a really good story. I've been Mm -hmm. enjoying it thus far. But what is wrong with it and the plot of the plan is what's wrong. Yes. It did not impact my enjoyment of the serial one iota. Mm Mm-mm. I mean, that's effective storytelling. If you can distract the audience away from your plot holes because you're, you're so interested in what else is going on, then... Yeah, because it's really about what's happening to the Doctor and his friends. Mm-hmm. I did like that where the Warlord basically, you know, oh, says the Doctor was doing you know, a good job because of what happened. And he's like, but why have you switched sides? Rather than most bad guys who just assume that you'll join up with them because they're 
awesome and stuff. <laughs> I mean, the warlord is actually awesome because he's smart and realizes that. Mm-hmm. I would switch sides because of the warlord. That turtleneck and beard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm all about that. <laughs> I need his grooming tips. Uh-huh. The security chief, right? So he, he catches the war chief on tape telling the doctor that he plans to take over. This was a few years before Watergate. So A, prescient storytelling, but why is everything being recorded? Because he told them to, I guess. He, he says that because I, you know, I made sure that your conversations were recorded. I'm not sure when he had time to do that. But once again, that's... Okay, I missed that line. That one I didn't worry about as much. I know that it wasn't something that was thought of as much back in the 60s, but as someone who's, you know, in current day, yeah, most everything is recorded. So mm-hmm. I just kind of was like, okay, yeah, he's been recording. Finally, you're listening to them. It kind of makes sense. I mean, we do have the security chief who looks like a Nazi. We have the warlord who, aside from looking like Steve Jobs, also has a very Bond villain-esque thing to him. And, yep. you know, even in the Bond movies, he's always got gadgets and recordings and microfilm and all that. So mm-hmm. it really, it, yeah. it fits the ethos. That's true. And I love that final showdown between the war chief and the security chief when the security chief confronts him. <laughs> mm. And the war chief starts off with, what a stupid fool you are. And the security chief just launches into his spiel and then goes, what a stupid, what a stupid fool you are. <laughs> I make him sound like Skeletor, I think. He does have to sound like that. <laughs> finally got him. It's taken him like five episodes, but he's finally got him. To go back to where our resistance folks are. Ah, uh, the reprocessing. Oh. Oh, and the slow thinker in terms of our, our Mexican guy. Oh. Mexican-Italian. Yes. <laughs> I love it. There is one plot hole with the fake reprogramming thing that I couldn't wrap my head around was... Hadn't the war chief seen that Jamie had been with the doctor since the very beginning? And he's not, doesn't have a place to really fit in because he isn't like from any particular zone. So with Jamie being the first one to go through the reprocessing and it just seems like wouldn't he be suspicious? Like that's the person he chose first. I thought that they did have someone because earlier we had the British soldier who thought he was fighting in the Battle of Culloden. Yeah, they had a zone that Jamie could have been from. I mean, that was why they had the... That's right, that's right, you're right. But your point does kind of stand if the war chief had recognized, hey, it's that same guy that's been around you the whole time. But maybe he just didn't pay any attention to Jamie. Probably not. (laughs) He's got a lot going on. He's wrapped (laughs) up in the security chief. He doesn't appreciate the finer things in life, such as Jamie. Got a lot of squabbling on his mind. Speaking of which, he's very quickly brought in to the rebels where he's locked up. So just like the doctor being screwed over by the security chief, now now it's the war chief being locked up with the people who hate him. He's quite vindictive. And I do love how he takes a lot of glee in eventually gunning down the security chief. There's so much personal revenge in this story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The end of a wonderful romance. It was always going to end this way. <laughs> One of us killing the other, surrounded by men in gimp suits. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we start getting set up for the final here, right? We we know mm-hmm. what's coming. Two machines have enough life left, so they can't get everyone home. We're, we're starting the setup. Mm-hmm. The, war, the war chief knows what's coming. He says to the doctor, you can't call them in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We stop all the fighting and... 
Oof. I'm not ready, guys. If we have to just linger on the end of this particular one, this is the first time I think we have legitimately seen the doctor frightened. Mm -hmm. And his whole thing is, I'm out. You guys stay (laughs) here. You'll get home. But I'm gone. Bye-bye. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Also, let's before we go into like the very, very end of episode nine, can we talk about the doctor summoning the Time Lords? I didn't know it was so similar to summoning Cenobites. <laughs> that was interesting. It was an interesting effect, but I know they had to do something with that instead of just having them like sit down and meditate. Well, they bring back those little message cubes in the Matt Smith era. Oh, oh yeah, that's, that's right. true. Think to the doctor's wife. Oh, that's a deep cut right yeah. there. That's pretty awesome. I really like that as an idea of being able to like put a message in a box and, and send it out. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I do think it would have been smarter if he'd done the summoning, you know, right next to the TARDIS. Yeah. But there are legitimate reasons why he couldn't behind the scenes. I think what adds to the Doctor's terror of the Time Lords is the War Chief is equally terrified of them coming in. Mm-hmm. And he tries to escape and is then intercepted by the Warlord, who is still incredibly calm and collected, but has the war chief killed. Another one bites the dust. But is he really dead? Good question. Yeah, well, that's another question that comes up in episode 10 that we'll get to that hits on that as well. Can we talk about the very ending scene of episode nine? Because I thought that, you know, I'm not usually a fan of slow motion, but I thought it worked perfect here because it was not just for dramatic effect. It was supposed to indicate like a, something physically happening yeah. to them. Mm. And the use of the music, the oh music with the organ, the organ is so cool. I loved it. It was, it was grandiose and like showing that something like huge and big was coming, but also that it was ominous. It was wonderful. So I agree with you in the the use of organ music here the continued use of the organ music i have some issues with not so good yes i think here that organ music is also compounded with the whooshing of the wind that we mm-hmm. get mm-hmm. of them coming it it's eerie and yet momentous at the same time it works so well yeah you have a feeling of a, a force of nature is coming mm-hmm. down upon them and You could be forgiven watching this in isolation for thinking that maybe the entire six seasons so far have been building up to this as opposed to this being kind of thought up on the fly because they make it that grandiose and that kind of epic at the end. I really like how it's done. Once we hit the end of episode 10, it really, it kind of is an end if anything was being set up to the beginning because, well, we'll get there. Yes. Mm -hmm. One last thing before we start episode 10. I did love how uh, Carstairs wanted to go back to 1917 before the Time Lords sent them all home to try and find Lady Jennifer. That was very sweet. Yes, it is sweet. I did like that. As I said, they end up married in in the books. Yay! Episode 10. So they get in the TARDIS and they go away and they land on a farm. If that was how you summarized (laughs) it. They go over to a farm upstate to live the rest of their lives, and that's it. The end. Live wrapped. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right, guys, let's rate it. Okay, <laughs> that was it. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> so we have the chase. We have a chase, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's barely a chase. Yeah, I mean, we just get shifted all around. We're on top of the ocean. We get some recycled footage from 
we get an alligator outside for some reason. I mean, and then eventually, you know, outside of all that, we're, we're just brought there. But they don't say what the name of the location is or the planet they're on, but it's just the home mm-hmm. of the Time Lords. So before we even get there, so they're trying to get away and you get that disembodied Time Lord voice in the TARDIS telling the Doctor that there is no escape. Yeah. And he has to come back. Yeah, it's very creepy. They are set up here as godlike. Oh, I mean, not just, I mean, everything they do, like the amount of powers that they show throughout this episode, it's just just like a god. You can't, I'm trying to think what their weaknesses would be. There's stuff here that you see in this serial that, from what I've seen in, in New Who, hasn't really come up again. Just the fact that, I mean, there's like some sort of weird mental power they use later on, the way they arrive on this planet, and... Frankly, you get the impression that the Doctor is from this planet, but he's not necessarily a Time Lord. He really does seem like a more ordinary person, but who was just had the same lifespan and was bored and really did just steal it so he could make a difference. Yeah, right. I think what you see, and Julie, I know you haven't seen anything further in Classic Who beyond this, but Riley, I know you've seen bits and pieces. Don, I know you've seen bits and pieces. Is they kind of slowly erode and wander away from this godlike what's the word I'm looking for, this godlike portrayal of the Time Lords. It's more like a kind of slow erosion that we'll see over the next 20 seasons. It's hard to make them interesting when you make them OP, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's the biggest problem, is that if they can do whatever they want and there's no repercussions because they can just overpower mentally whatever they're dealing with, that's no fun of a story if you're going to come up against them again and again. That's very true. And I think this is one thing that I'm overwhelmed by the weight of canon and of history. I don't really like the Time Lords or delving into the Doctor's backstory. No. It fills up time, but it always just makes things more convoluted and worse. You're talking in general, Zon? Yeah, I'm talking about in general over the course of the entire series Okay, where new things are, are revealed. Oh, they all have regenerations. Oh, it's only this many. All this kind of stuff. No, it's don't do that. It's about a guy who stole a box and goes to planets and helps people. Because then you get stuck into the, oh, hey, Gallifrey was destroyed. Oh, hey, it's back again. Oh, hey, it got destroyed again. Oh, hey, it's back again. Like, I'm tired of this yo-yo. I'm tired of of this Mm -hmm. place. Can we just not? It it goes back to what I always feel like the show was about or should be about is that one of the things that makes it so interesting is that, as we discussed, we have basically a godlike alien. And the focus of the show shouldn't be who is this godlike alien? What is going on? with their backstory, it should be, what is this godlike alien who's been around forever? Think about ordinary human beings yep. yeah. and dealing with them. And what does that say about us as human beings? Like, what is our what are our good qualities? What are our bad qualities? What are our quirky qualities? Stuff like that. It, the doctor is there to be, you know, our, our protagonist. Sometimes our, no, I guess not an antagonist, but our protagonist just to like, you know, or to get the story moving. But he is a, a sounding board off of the, the companions and or just who Whoever shows up in each episode week to week. Yeah. More yeah. stuff they add, they inadvertently just take things away. Like if if mm. this was all we ever saw of them and he gives that explanation of, hey, we had all this power, we can't do anything. I was bored and he went to explore the universe and found out how much he enjoyed helping people rather than, you know, starting out by hitting them with rocks just to get his own way and get I mean that's a, an amazing bit of character growth that I didn't just want to see things like I did at first I wanted to help people 
Yeah, exactly. And if they cut it off and we'd never seen the Time Lords again here, they would have been incredibly effective. Yes. Yes. Just mm -hmm. going back to their psychic power, when they're putting the Warlord on trial and they force him to speak by mm -hmm. using psychic powers and we see him on the ground screaming in pain like he's been so calm and collected and cool up to this point that's really weird to see the warlord like that oh yeah do they ever do that again no <laughs> as i said i was less like less shocked to see the warlord's reaction i was more amazed to see the time lords do this yeah you know i mean and, and also like as has already been mentioned that that is a ridiculous power for any character to have in a fiction just to like i can just think about it and you're going to be crumpled up on the floor in such ex horrible excruciating pain that you can't do anything other than scream I was also very surprised to discover that Gulliver was a Time Lord. Yes. <laughs> I was going to make a comment of, it's nice to see that if anything else, they've been consistent and Time Lords have always been dicks. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two of the three Time Lords will come back as Time Lords again in Doctor Who, which is something I love. Lovely bit of continuity. Bernard Horsfall, a.k.a. Gulliver, will be back in season 14's The Deadly Assassin. And Clyde Pollitt, the third Time Lord, will be back in season 10's The Three Doctors, both playing Time Lords again. I love that little bit of continuity. I like to think they're the same Time Lords each time. Yes. More on the Warlord's trial. So even after he's been reduced to screaming, he is still incredibly defiant. He refuses to acknowledge the authority of the court. He tries to throw the doctor under the bus. I mean, dude, he, he's at this point like, I'm not going to get out of this, so I'm just going to burn everything down with me and to hell with it. I was actually really surprised that they continued with his character because they had, you know, the guys, what are we call them, the Gimp Warriors or whatever they are? Gimp Troopers. Mm -hmm. Gimp Troopers, Gimp Troopers, yes showing up and basically assisting him in an attempt to escape i didn't expect that to happen no and you kind of wonder what was the point like we've seen how godlike the time lords are again did he think that was going to end well i think the whole thing is there's a lot of i mean just based on what we've seen of doctor who you always expect there to be an escape and this is showing there is no escape when they let the doctor go and see Jamie and Zoe, and then they're like, okay, run. And they basically get right at the TARDIS. You have, even though we kind of know how this is going, we're like, oh, maybe they'll get away. Maybe it'll, it'll work out. And it's just repeatedly seeing him being almost defeated. It's emotionally impactful. Yes, I'm with that. And I think speaking of the escape attempt, this hits back on what Julie raised, and we might as well go ahead and talk about it now. So the war chief dead, question mark, on this escape attempt for the warlord, the mechanics working on the TARDIS, I guess the Time Lords maybe outsource their work on TARDIS to other races for people that don't regenerate because they're just dead. The, the Gim Troopers kill him. I think, isn't there some lore where not all people on that planet are Time Lords? Hang on, hang on. So let's put this in the perspective of the time. Regeneration is not a fully evolved concept. We've had the Doctor renew his body once. We're about to have the Time Lords force him to change his appearance, but it's not really an established concept. Especially because in the first time we saw it, the Doctor said it was a function of the TARDIS. Yeah. So it's still working within established canon. We're still about five years away from the actual concept of regeneration being brought up as a regular thing that happens to all Time Lords. Fair enough. 
So I like it. And yes, there have been a ton of efforts in televised Doctor Who, in expanded media to try and explain it. And yes, Julie, you are right. There is the the concept that there are Time Lords and, and then just straight up Gallifreyans who aren't Time Lords, two races. And I think Gallifreyans can become Time Lords by going to the Academy and staring into the untempered schism and what have you. But that's all come later. I mean, based on the context of the story, it sounds like Time Lord is a job more than anything else. That'd be a pretty cool business card to have. <laughs> hey, maybe they were shot with the stun setting. Maybe. Yeah. Don, I'm going to print you a bunch of business cards that just say Don, <laughs> Time Lord. You know, I was going to make fun and make a point of like, oh, so as Domacy and the Dominators decide to call themselves Dominators, so the Time Lords, like, oh, how egotistical they call themselves Time Lords. I don't know, fair enough. With all the powers they have, they could call them whatever the hell they want to call themselves. Dominators, you've got Time Lords. You've got ice warriors. They could even call themselves the time dominators. But <laughs> All right. So <laughs> punishment for the warlord and his people. Brutal. Yeah. <laughs> Force field around the whole home planet and then dematerialize him and his gimp troopers so they never even existed. Ouch. Yeah. yeah. But they can do whatever they want. And now onto the doctor's trial. Which is, I thought was an interesting echo of the first couple of episodes of this serial where he was on trial by General Smythe. That's very true. And essentially has the same <laughs> outcome and that he's condemned to what's essentially death. Yeah, when you think about it, I mean, again, the 13 lives thing came much later. I mean, here the doctors already said we can live forever barring accidents, but put in the context of the, the later mythology, they've just taken a life away from him fundamentally. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're taking away is essentially a life. And even if you view it within later context, they're, de they're destroying his personality. Yeah, it's an execution. 100%. He is very proud of his interference, though. As well, he should be. As well. And then we get Jamie and Zoe trying one last time. Again, that little bit of hope, that little bit of hey, maybe they'll, they'll you know think of something. That final actual escape attempt, do you think the Doctor only went along with it to try and give Jamie and Zoe a little bit of hope? I think he had a little bit of hope himself. Just maybe. Really? At the very end where he's finally saying, no, Jamie, no, you've got to go with him. That's when it's final. That's when he has accepted that there's just, there's just no way. I don't, I don't know. I feel like it was kind of agree with Anthony. I think it was done as a one more one more time, one little quick little adventure kind of thing. Just kind of give them like a little bit of like that, that feeling again. I don't know if he did it necessarily for them because when they were getting sent back, he was like, they won't remember. Well, they, I think he always knew that they would have their memories taken from them. So I think it was for himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got a lot of resignation through this. He knows what's going to happen. You, you know, you hear it in his voice. He's he's resigned to it. And when Jamie says we can keep trying, he's just like, no, no, Jamie. The fact that their memories were wiped, I mean, they knew he existed, but he was there and then left. That was the part that got me. Because oh. we've seen Jamie grow and become, you know, more cultured. And we've seen Zoe who left because she just didn't feel like she belonged there. And then basically being shoved back into a life that she didn't want. And, you know, when you think about it with Zoe, that culture brainwashed yeah. her. Yeah. Well, her culture brainwashed her. And then Jamie's going back to the after effects of Culloden, where they take away his kilt, they take away the tartan, they take away Gaelic. He's not going back to a pretty place. 
Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> especially if they catch him killing that British uh, soldier that he's chasing yeah. down. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and they really hammer home what's happening to these two. You know, with Zoe, they bring back Tanya to say, yes, she's back on the wheel. With Jamie, they put him back right where we first saw him. I mean, it's not just they're gone and we don't see where they've gone and we can headcanon it that they got sent to the wrong place or what have you. No, they are back where they started. And it's kind of disturbing because in a way, uh, and I know it's been mentioned that, as Don has mentioned, that their character development is taken away, but also it kind of, in a way, it's the show taking these characters that were companions and reducing them back to one week guest star characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one episode and that is it. And that's that's very interesting and quite sad. The whole thing I found that I kind of mentioned this a, a, a few minutes ago, but at the end of this episode, you can really view this as being the end of Doctor Who as it first began. Oh, 100%. The through line mm-hmm. of connecting the Doctor through his transition and through the companions, we've always had overlap. But at the end of this, the Doctor that we knew was gone and the companions he had are gone. It's, yeah. You can view this, this was really the end of that result run of Doctor Who. And crucially, we don't see the new Doctor. No. And it mm-hmm. goes into color. Yeah, I'm- it is truly a clean break. I mean, absolutely a clean break. Yeah. And, you know, we'll come back to it next time. There's one element that ties it to what we've seen before. But for much as people joke about Doctor Who died with Peter Capaldi and Jodie Whittaker's not really the Doctor, there's on-screen continuity there. You see the 12th Doctor regenerate into the 13th Doctor. She's not an imposter. We don't see Patrick Troughton regenerate into John Pertwee. For all we know, the third Doctor is an imposter, and this was the last thing anyone ever saw of the Doctor. Entirely possible. I mean, I know there's been, you know, fan talks of the mythical season 6B. I was going to bring that up. Thank you. You got there before me. You can't really do that with this Doctor and with these companions. You could say that there were a a bunch of regenerations happened between him and Pertwee that we just never saw in the Time Lord's Life his memory. You could do that kind of BS. But really, yeah, the, the continuity, there's a clean break right here. So some fans in the early 90s started a fan film called Devious that was set in between and actually had an additional incarnation. And they hired John Pertwee before he died to come in and do a regeneration scene Wow! and show this wow, in-between okay. doctor regenerating into John Pertwee, which is pretty cool. And then they, they end it with John Pertwee falling out of the TARDIS at the beginning of, of Spearhead from Space. So yeah, that that fan film is still they're still trying to finish it it's it's been like in development hell for 30 years at this point but wow yeah clips of it are out there we'll put them in the show notes so we don't end on a on a sad somber note and i know this is backtracking to the doctor's trial but (laughs) in the doctor's trial as he's defending himself and he talks about how he's fighting all this evil the quarks (laughs) that's the that's that's who you're going to lead your argument off with is like (sighs) I was fighting really hard against evil, like this thing. And I'm like, that's who you start the off with? The funny thing is, he mentions, what is it? It's the quarks, and then the Yeti. All all robotic servants of the actual evil that you think he would have mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then the Ice Warriors. I've got it in my notes. The quarks? What? The Yeti? Uh. <laughs> the Ice Warriors? Nope. The Cybermen? Okay, getting there. And the Daleks. All right, that one's There good. we go, yeah. I think he chose those specifically because, you know, some of the other antagonists that we had were very much earthbound in 
were only a threat to Earth. Some of these other ones, I think, could go to different places and things like that. So that's why those were the ones he chose. I think he picked the ones that looked the most sci-fi. Yeah, or that. <laughs> yeah. To segue off of what Julie just said about Earth, that's our main thing that we're going to be left with here. I mean, we've already talked about the doctor having to have his body and face change, but the other part of the sentence is you are now exiled on Earth. Oh, yay. 20th century Earth. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. No, can't change time. Got to stay there. Which they do say, you know, we, we accept that there is evil that must be fought. And I think on a story that's been so down on humanity, we're now going to see the doctor exiled to Earth to try and make things better and to try and make us better. Try to make the show cheaper. That too. Yes. <laughs> it's it's almost it's almost Corey time. <laughs> I was trying to give some like good in show philosophical commentary and Don's like I saw that. Money. <laughs> money. Money uh, cheap. Sets cheap. Don't worry guys. Soon we'll have uh, bubble wrap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so let let's talk about Troughton's final moments. So we get those sketches on the screen, which are just Don, you already alluded to them. They're just not done well. It's not that they're not done well. It just seemed inappropriate. Like you would have thought they would have had, you know, some pictures, maybe some people that were in the crew as a joke. And the same thing that got me was when they were showing, you know, the effects of the war games and, and talking about the guy and they were showing all these people died. But they were using like paintings and drawings, not always photos. I'm like, you're, you're kind of not really selling your message there. So I think they have a problem with <laughs> displaying things on there. And then we, we see him being cast off and it gets very gurney. We get a little Bohemian Rhapsody video in there. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a weird end to such a somber story and such a heart-wrenching departure for Jamie and Zoe. And Troughton does not get the best send-off. I, I don't know, because when he, when he came in, it was all very psychedelic and weird. And as he leaves, it's also very psychedelic and weird. I guess there's some symmetry. I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah, I guess there's some symmetry there, Don. I would totally have preferred if we got a regeneration scene and all that and some... I, I don't remember what his actual last words were, but I think there was something about, oh, you're making me giddy, which is not the most distinguished yeah. final <laughs> words. But like I said, I think, there's, I think there's some symmetry there, and I'm still far more sad about his leaving than I think I really should be for a, you know, a show that aired in... What, 1969? Yeah. I get very upset from the new Who regenerations that I've seen and the changing of doctors that I've seen in classic Who. I've, like I said, I've made it up to the fourth doctor. I get very upset when the actors don't get... I mean, it's, it's a cliche in drama where an actor gets to do with death scene. And I just think that it's kind of crucial, especially in a show like Doctor Who where you have so much time you spend with that character and there's so much that the writers can call from and the actor can call from that you really, that, that is such an important part of being the doctor is to be able to give an amazing goodbye. And like you said, granted, we, the whole concept is still new to the show with Trout and, you know, right here. So there is no big send off. It's just, you know, we don't, it's not built up as much. So we're, we have this, the Bohemian Rhapsody ending, like Anthony said. First of all, yep. it could be worse. He could have fallen off an exercise bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll remember get that. that. And it's <laughs> we're, we're really seeing the doctor in defeat. Mm -hmm. He had to, he had to call in people he didn't want to call in. He had to send his companions back, and they will remember all the things they did. And he's he's losing his personality and his face. 
Although he's quibbling about it the entire way, which is pretty cool. And to your point, Don, he had to call them in knowing full well what would likely happen and what the outcome would yeah. be. Yeah, and he, he did that to save all those people. And this is really the first time we've seen the Doctor defeated. Mm-hmm. Let's do the ratings. Riley, we will start with you this time. I feared you'd say that. All right. I think this would have been a perfect eight-episode serial instead of ten. I know that's something we often say, but in this one, it's so clear. This reminds me of what like a double LP that has some a collection of like maybe 13 great songs out of like 30 that are on there. You don't need all the extra stuff. Just make it one regular length album and it's just, you know, it's amazing from beginning to end and you could have really hit it. And the way this serial could have trimmed things down, remove the repetitive plot elements, the constant reprogramming, deprogramming, hypnotizing with the glasses and the back and forth and back and forth. That could have been trimmed up so, so much. It's that that is just crucial. But I had seen this serial before. I didn't care for it before, but this time going through it with a full experience of the second doctor, I enjoyed it much, much more. And I appreciate so much more about it than I did before. So I will give this eight magic boxes out of ten. Wow. Next time you watch it, your, your third watch through, you might get it up to 9.5. <laughs> All right, I'm next. I think this story's great. It's really got that epic feel. And, you know, yes, it's 10 parts. Yes, it's long. But that in itself doesn't make it epic. This story has a sense of scale. We've got the various time zones. We've got a big cast. We've got the, the looming of the Time Lords at the end. And a, an episode that builds up to it. We've got some fantastic villains in the shape of of the war chief, the security chief, and the warlord, General Smythe. I, I just think there's so much to like here. And I think this is a very, very fitting end to the Troughton era. It says a lot about it. It's got some great sets. It's got some great costumes. I think this is just so well done. It's it's not quite at the level of the mind robber for me, which if you recall, I gave our show's first ten out of ten. But for me, this is this is a solid nine gimp troopers out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Don, you're next. Well, because I don't want to repeat too much stuff here. I think if you're gonna have to do a ten parter, this is the way to do it. Normally when we watch these I can get through maybe two episodes of a serial in a day without wanting to kind of stop and take back. With this one, I was able to watch three or four at a time, except I delayed watching the last episode because I really just just wasn't emotionally ready. Because to me, I've grown really attached to the second Doctor and basically seeing him terrified at the end of, of episode nine and just, you know, facing what is essentially a defeat was really emotionally engaging for me which was nice and not something I was expecting. I think this is an incredible story, and I think one that probably deserves more love than it gets, and I'm giving it nine hate squabbles out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and last but not least, Miss Julie. All right, and again, not to reiterate a lot of those things, but I actually personally liked the back and forth because going back and forth changed each time it did that. So it wasn't just, oh, we're back to the same old thing. It's like, okay, well, we went back, but we went back with knowing this new information and we're able to move forward with the plot and it's not just a complete rehash. 
for the most part, the music is good throughout. There were a few questionable moments, um, but there were some really things that shined. The organ music, the Crimean War music was really good. The overall war theme is good if overused. And that last episode, I just had all the feelings. And it's the most feelings that I've had in any Doctor Who story up to this point. So I am also going to give it nine Gaelic war cries out of ten. Craig <laughs> And that gives us a story average of 8.75. It is our second highest rated story of the season. So that's awesome. So since we've wrapped up our story discussion, very, very quickly onto the mail. Friend of the podcast, J.M. Casey, commented on our Facebook page to talk about our episode on the Crotons, stating his theory that the Crotons were trying to train the Gon's brains in a very certain way to have them perform the necessary calculations for their ship, and all other education went to the wayside. We will definitely have to ponder that one. Anyway, with that, it's time for us to wrap up. We will be back next time when we will do our customary end-of-season retrospective. But for now, thank you very much for listening, and have a good one. Dimension. Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Hate Squabbling, was recorded on Wednesday the 28th of April 2021. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available on your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favourite podcasting app. All three of those things really do help the show. And always remember, If caught by the Time Lords, there's a chance that you'll never remember.